The scripture reading for the sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. The word of God reads, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We live in a world where we are constantly told that there are things that we must see. It's summertime and new movies have been released and we must see these new movies, especially the ones that depict superheroes. Netflix has released a new series of Stranger Things and it is considered must-see TV. In the fall, we must see certain football games. We must see the Cowboys play. We must see college football. And we will go out of our way to record those games and then go back and watch them. Bands come into town and we must see them because we might not have a chance to see them again for the next few years. There are natural wonders all around the world, all throughout the United States that are considered must-see. The Grand Canyon is considered a must-see place to go. People must see Mount Rushmore. We must see certain things in our world, in our life. And we arrange our schedules and arrange our lives in such a way that we are able to see these must-see events and places and things. The scriptures tell us that there is, in fact, something that we must see, that we truly must see. And what we must see and strive to see is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that through the course of this message, that we will be stirred by the Holy Spirit to lift our eyes up and away from this time and place to the heavenly realms. That we will lift our eyes towards the heavens and seek the things that are above. 
There was a man named Stephen whom we met last week who did this very thing. Stephen was a bilingual, cross-cultural servant in the church. He was ordained as a judge and officer of the church to wait on tables and take care of widows. But he was also known as a capable minister of the word, an apologist for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And by apologist, I mean that he was a defender of the Christian faith. Stephen was a man full of grace and power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. Acts 6 tells us that in the face of intense criticism and conflict, his face shone like the face of an angel. Now, the fact that his face shone like the face of an angel needs to be explained. Dr. Al Mohler explained this text in a commencement address to some seminary graduates. And he said, in the Bible, angels are not sweet, cherubic creatures seeking to bring cuteness to a room. They are messengers of God. They inspire awe and fear. Their purpose was to bring a message from the one true God. This is the ministry of the word. Not cute, not harmless, not ready to jump off a greeting card, but fearless, faithful, forceful to the end. In that sense, Stephen's face was angelic. Like Moses' face after he had been in the presence of God, his face shone and reflected the glory of God. Like Jesus' face on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face shone with like the lightning of heaven. His critics did not see him as a cute and sweet cherub, but as a courageous and saintly Christian. In his message to the members of the synagogue and the Sanhedrin, Stephen defended himself against their charges. They charged him with being against the law, against Moses, and against the temple. And yet through the course of his defense, which you find in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen turn the tables on them and levy the same charges against them that they had levied against him. In other words, he flips the script. Throughout this message, he shows that he is in fact for the law, for Moses, and for the temple because he is for Jesus Christ. He told the story of God and his people from Abraham to Christ. And he showed that God has always related to his people covenantally. And that all of God's covenant promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen acting like a covenant prosecutor. Stephen made the case that God is faithful both as a covenant maker and as a covenant keeper. But the people of God are unfaithful from one generation to the next. 
historically that was the case. And now Stephen looks at the men in front of him and says, existentially, it is the same case. This generation is unfaithful to God who has always been faithful. And that is why he takes out the dagger and gives the kill shot at the very end. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, don't miss the point tucked in there that here is a man who had a face like the face of an angel and they resisted and rejected his message just as their forefathers had resisted and rejected the message of God, which was delivered to them by angels. Stephen is simply saying to this audience of the elders of Israel, The more things change, the more they remain the same. Now, these men understood exactly what Stephen was getting at. They understood the point he was making. That's why they were enraged when they heard these things and they ground their teeth at him. They ground their teeth at him. As someone has said, All pastors want to preach well, but none want to preach as well as Stephen. Stephen stirred up a hornet's nest. He stirred up the Sanhedrin. He got under their skin and into their hearts and shook them up. And here we see Stephen standing as a pastor for Christ and against the world. Not a soft, dainty pushover, ready to cave in at the first sign of pressure. Not as a hipster, cool preacher, proving his cultural relevance. But as a cross-bearing messenger on mission from God for the life of the world. In the words of Richard Baxter, Stephen preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. What enabled him? What empowered him to do that? We've already seen that he was a man full of grace and power, that his face was angelic. But now we see that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he did not preach as a dying man to dead men in the weakness of his flesh, but in the power of God's spirit. He was not centered on himself. He was not concerned about his career path, upward mobility or celebrity status. He was concerned about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was centered on Christ alone. So here we have Stephen's final words at the very end of his life. And not only have we seen his angelic face, but now we catch a glimpse of his Christ-shaped heart. 
as this crowd rallied itself and circled him, Stephen gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Here at the hour of his death, Stephen saw the glory of God in the ascended, glorified, majestic Lord Jesus Christ. Here in the moment when things seemed the darkest and the bleakest, when all hope of survival was lost, in that dark moment... He saw the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He saw what theologians call the beatific vision. The beatific vision. Beatific meaning blessed and then vision sight. It's the blessed sight of the glory of God. It is defined in various ways by Theologians across the Christian traditions. Some say the beatific vision is the immediate knowledge of God with the which the angelic spirits and the souls of the just enjoy in heaven. Tim Keller explains the beatific vision in this way. In his book, Prayer, he says the term beatific vision describes the direct sight of the glory of God. This is what the redeemed will have in heaven fully by sight and what believers have now on earth partially by faith and not yet with our literal eyes. In other words, we walk by faith right now, but in the afterlife, in the life to come, We will no longer walk by faith, but by sight. Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas made the beatific vision the centerpiece of his thought. Yet very few Protestant theologians have touched on it at all, which might explain why so few, if any of you, have ever heard a sermon on the beatific vision. But many Reformed theologians did touch on this. And one example is found in the works of the Reformed theologian John Owen. Tim Keller says, Owen is doggedly insistent that meditating upon the beatific vision is a vital practice for all Christians to cultivate because our Christian life and thinking should be oriented toward the hope of the beatific vision and shaped by the foretaste we receive of it here and now. In other words, our truest and deepest heart's desire ought to be this, to know God, to see God, to commune with God face to face, spirit to spirit. God is spirit, and yet we shall see him as he is. In his essence, not in his form, we shall see God, not with our physical eyes, but with our spirit, 
we shall behold God in an unmediated, unveiled, unfiltered way. As Reformed theologian Herman Bovink expresses in his Reformed dogmatics, and thus they will all know him. Each in the measure of his mental capacity with a knowledge that has its image and likeness in God's knowledge directly, immediately, unambiguously, and purely. Then they will receive and possess everything they expected here only in hope. Thus, contemplating and, com- and possessing God, they will enjoy Him and are blessed in His fellowship, blessed in soul and body, in intellect and will. In other words, when the redeemed are drawn to the presence of God, they will experience the total bliss of seeing God as He is. And they will be overwhelmed with joy and love throughout the entire part of their being. With the gracious help of the Holy Spirit, Stephen was able to lift his eyes above the here and now, above space-time reality. And he was able to see into the heavens as the sky was ripped open. And he saw the beatific vision, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now notice, he did not see this beatific vision with his waking eyes, for no one could see that and live. The physical eye is not capable of seeing such things, but were a man able to see those things in his physicality, he could not survive the experience. Stephen was able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ with his spirit, for he was granted true sight from the Holy Spirit. He saw what no one else around him could see. He was enabled to stand firm in the faith, not only in this life, but also in the face of death as a result of seeing that vision. In other words, the vision of Christ Jesus standing at the right hand of God in all of his glory and majesty is the thing that gave Stephen courage and confidence in the hour of his death. Now the details of what Stephen saw cannot be known. They are not explained. They are not expressed to us in this passage. As a friend and I discussed recently, the beatific vision is indescribable. Our finite words cannot describe the infinite truth, beauty, and goodness of God, nor express the infinite bliss and blessedness of God's love towards us and experienced by us in that moment, nor 
can our words enter into the immortal and unapproachable light where God dwells and bring out knowledge of that experience for others to see and hear and know. All we know is that Stephen saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as a result, he was changed. He was transformed. He became even more like Christ because he saw Christ as he is. It has been said that we become what we observe. And that is why we encourage people to be careful what they observe. But here we see a man who observed Christ and he was transformed. Seeing Christ in his glory transformed Stephen from one degree of glory to another. And that is why even with stones pounding his body, even with stones crashing into his head. He was able to pray as he did. He echoed the words of Jesus Christ. The same words that Jesus prayed from the cross. With his dying breath, Stephen prayed, receive me and forgive them. Receive me. Take me home. Get me out of here. Forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. Do not charge it to their account. This was not the prayer of an escapist. This was a prayer of a man who had seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He knew his time had come and he was not clinging to this world any longer. He knew that he was being called Farther up and farther in. This was not a man who was willing to harbor bitterness and animosity towards anyone. This was a man who was willing to forgive and prayed that God himself would forgive those who sinned against him. He's taking no baggage with him to the other world. When he had said these things, he fell asleep. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. Why? Because in God's grace, in God's mercy, in God's providence and sovereignty, he uses death as the means to bring us home. What should be the end and the annihilation of anyone becomes a transport. To bring us home. God grants rest to those he loves. And in this moment Stephen found rest. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas is known as one of the greatest medieval theologians. Of the Christian church. In fact he is often referred to as an angelic doctor of the church. He is best known for writing several volumes of theological works called the Summa Theologia. It's a massive multi-volume work, 
over which he labored for several years of his life. And yet this work was never finished. And here's why. In December of the year 1273 A.D., Thomas was celebrating Mass when he received a revelation, a vision that so affected him that he wrote and dictated no more, leaving his great work unfinished. His secretary and friend, Brother Reginald, kept asking him, pressuring him to continue writing and dictating. Thomas replied, the end of my labors has come. All that I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. Later on, when asked again by Reginald to return to writing, Thomas said, I can write no more, for I have seen things that make my writings like straw. Now make what you will of Thomas Aquinas' experience. But whatever you make of it, know this, that what he experienced, the revelation, the vision that he believed he received was so real to him and impacted him so deeply and profoundly that it changed his life. It changed the course of his life so that he looked at his massive work and declared it to be straw compared to the vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He never described what he saw. He never wrote volumes about it. He never published a book about his eight seconds in heaven. But he carried a vision in his heart and mind for the next few months until he died. And a vision he kept secret for he was not able to talk about it. This is very similar to what happened to the Apostle Paul. As he describes a man himself who was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that men are not able to speak of. That words fail to capture. And he lived the rest of his days with this vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ burned upon his consciousness, burned into his heart. And yet he was unable to speak of those things. Things that are too marvelous and too wonderful for the human tongue to tell. The thing that I want you to notice about the story of Aquinas is the change that came over him. The change of perspective. Around here, we often sing hymns and songs that encourage us to do that. Just today, we were singing, Behold our God seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. These cannot be empty words. They must be expressions of faith whereby we encourage one another to lift our eyes up to heaven to seek the things that are above And why would we do that? 
Well, as we sing in another song, it's when you turn your eyes on Jesus and look full into his wonderful face that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm convinced that one reason some things seem so big to us and so important to us is because we have such a small view of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We desire things of this earth, things that are must-see, that must be experienced, must be acquired. And yet we give so little thought or effort or feeling to the thing that really and truly must be seen and experienced and apprehended by the heart and the mind of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what must we do? We are encouraged by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that means united to Christ in His death and united to Christ in His resurrection, all of us who have been raised with Christ should set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In fact, we should seek the things above. As we look and wait for our Savior to come from there, For when Christ in whom we are hidden, in Christ in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in Christ in whom dwells the glory and grace of God, when He appears, we shall appear with Him in glory. And so all of this is to say, Set your heart and mind on things above. Fix the gaze of your faith in the heavens towards the glory of God.